Well, we've received the, the first of our Christmas cards at the house, and um, I have to say that my family and friends are pretty good looking, They're pretty well put together, uh, lovely children and pets and well-designed cards. Some are uh, better than others, but I think overall, pretty good. And I, but I've yet to see a really unflattering or bad picture on a Christmas card. You wouldn't do that. You want to look good. You want to present well and look like things are, you know, put together. There's nothing wrong with that. Even the Christmas cards that are kind of chaotic and, oh, look how crazy it is. Look at my kid all tangled up in the Christmas lights. That's all staged and it's all very cute and it's all very well done. Um, So there's nothing wrong with that. You want it to look good. But if you lived your whole life like your family looks on the Christmas card, that's a lot of pressure. If you had to day in and day out post pictures of yourself that make you look good and successful and beautiful and put together, that would be a lot of pressure. It's called social media. People do it. It's called Instagram, where you're constantly having to portray yourself in photos to the world. Uh, But I want to ask the question, though, what really is beautiful? What is success? Uh, What is real strength? I want to consider that today as we continue our sermon series through the questions of Christmas. So each Sunday we're taking a very common aspect of the Christmas story and we're taking a deep dive on it and asking why. So today is why a Bethlehem manger? Because a manger, we have a little manger scene over here sitting on the organ. Some of you can see that. A manger scene isn't one of those, you know, perfect Uh, well put together, nice and shiny kind of things, not real flashy. And on the surface, the whole situation at the manger was not one that looked powerful or well put together. Now, our manger scenes are cute, and and some of these are really ornate and really kind of uh, quaint, and we love to sentimentalize these things, and uh, that's fine, I suppose. But the danger in that kind of a scene is we miss what's really going on there. And actually, there's a lot of stuff around the birth of Jesus that we cram into those mangers that don't belong there. So, the, the, even, so there's the wise men there and their camels. They're probably not at the manger. So neither would be the, perhaps not even the star. So if yours has a star on it, maybe it doesn't belong there. Ours has an angel on it. The angels weren't at the manger. They were out in the fields and signaling the shepherds to go. So the shepherds would have been there. Um, but the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible actually doesn't even say there was animals where Jesus was born in that, whatever that room was. That's interesting. I want the animals to be there, though, because I've got them. I want donkeys and, uh, and, and goats and all of them. I want them all there. But perhaps they were there. The fact that there was a feeding trough um, signals that there was probably animals at least nearby. Um, but Mary... You know, Mary riding the donkey into Bethlehem, there's no account in the Bible that Mary rode on a donkey. I hope she had a ride. I mean, she was so pregnant that, that, but maybe a donkey's not great when you're pregnant. I don't, I've never been either pregnant or on a donkey. (laughs) But the, you know, we we add a lot to this. Um, Even manger, the word itself, I don't use the word manger in my vocabulary unless I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. 
if I see a manger, I say, oh, look, a feeding trough. I never say, oh, hey, look, a manger. It's just, it, we just don't use that word. We've just sort of designated and isolated and created this little scene. But really, we're talking about a feeding trough. And the question I want to ask today is, why a feeding trough? Or I phrase it, why a Bethlehem manger? And so that's kind of two questions. Why Bethlehem and then why a manger? So I want to start with the Bethlehem piece and then answer the manger piece. But I want to do two things. One is, especially when we talk about Bethlehem, I really want to tie in a lot of the Old Testament of the Bible and a lot of why the why Bethlehem is going to hopefully tie together a lot of the scriptures for you. And I know for some of you that's going to be, that could be fascinating I know for others of you, I might just completely lose you in sort of the Old Testament stories. <clears throat> That's okay. I will signal you at a certain point in the message to rejoin us if you tune out the, all the Old Testament background. I find it interesting. You may not. Um, and I acknowledge that. The other thing I want to do, not just connect the Bible to itself for you, but I want to connect you to the heart of God. It can connect you to the kingdom of God, which is very different than the kingdom of this world especially as we think about what does beauty look like, what is success, what is being put together, what is, what is strength in our world. Because the way that God's kingdom would show that and the way that you would live that in God's kingdom is different than the world. So that's what I want to do today. Let's pray as we do this. So Father, oh Father, there's a lot of joy in this place. There's joy in music, there's joy uh, in, in children and gift giving, and uh, there's just joy in being together. But Father, I pray that our joy would be, that you would be our joy, just your very presence here, and that it would be your joy and your pleasure to teach us, to help us to grow, to trust you more. Lord, we struggle, we stumble through this world, yet you are steady and good. You are the rock. You are our foundation. And I pray that during this time, you would give us a firmer stance on the foundation of your word and your way as you teach us during this time, Lord. So we just give ourselves to you, and we give this time to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, why a Bethlehem manger? Part one. Why Bethlehem? Well, why Bethlehem is because of, it's all because of David. The king David was from Bethlehem. Verse four says, Joseph went up from Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, to the town of David, as it was also called, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. It's all, the only reason they're in Bethlehem is because they're related, this family is related to David. Because apart from David, there's not really a lot to say about Bethlehem. And the things that we can say about Bethlehem, a lot of them aren't good. The first thing the Bible says about Bethlehem is related to, this, to the story, the Old Testament story of Jacob and Rachel. Now, Jacob fell in love with Rachel. He wanted to marry her. He worked for Rachel's father for seven years to earn her hand in marriage. So he worked these seven years. Dad tricked Jacob into marrying her less attractive older sister. So he has to work another seven years to earn Rachel's hand in marriage. And, and she had trouble conceiving children. She finally gave birth to one son. She's giving birth to her second son. And on the road to Bethlehem, she dies while giving birth. It's the place of her death. That's all it says. So you look through your Bible, Bethlehem. It's where beloved Rachel 
dies. Fast forward to the time of the judges in the Old Testament. At the end of the book of Judges, two accounts. One uh, person from Bethlehem, so hometown of Bethlehem, was a priest. He was from the tribe of Levi, so he was, this was a group of people who God designated to be priests. He gets hired to be a priest in an idolatrous temple where they're worshiping false gods and doing this all kinds of things. This is this guy from Bethlehem. That's all it says about him. Not great. Judges chapter 19, there was another person from Bethlehem, a woman who was brutally raped and murdered. And after her, the, the result of her murder was a massacre of a whole bunch of people, essentially a civil war between God's people. That happened because of this woman from Bethlehem. At the same time, in the time of Judges, the book of Ruth starts in the town of Bethlehem. And you have Ruth and her husband, I'm not Ruth, you have a woman named Naomi in the book of Ruth. Her husband and her two sons, they have to leave Bethlehem because there's a big famine. They can't even stay there anymore. So they go to another land, her husband dies, and Naomi's two sons, they both die. She goes back to Bethlehem with no husband, no sons, and she says, the people say, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And that's her reentry into Bethlehem. So that's Bethlehem in the Old Testament for you. Now, the story of Naomi has, in her daughter in law Ruth, has a, a nice ending if you read through that. So that's a positive thing. But it ends with a baby being born, and that baby is the grandfather of David. The Bethlehem thing is all about David. So why David? So now I'm breaking my own rules here. So we're asking why Bethlehem? Because of David, so why David? Like a little child. Like, why? Why? But why? Because. Because why? You know. Well, why David? God was revealing himself through this nation of people. It was Jacob's family or the, the nation of Israel. God's revealing himself. And these people said, God, we want a king. And God said, you do not need a king. They said, no, we want a king. God said, if you, through the prophet, he said, if you have a king, the king's going to tax you. And the king is going to enlist your, your children into the army. So the king is going to take your money and your children. You don't need a king. And the people said, no, we want a king. God said, fine, I'll give you a king. And he gave them a king that they would expect. His name was Saul. He was tall and he looked successful and he was from a good family. And, and it was, you know, he was the king. And, he, and, and in a lot of ways, Saul was a somewhat successful king. But he did things the way that kings do things in this world. And he disobeyed God because of that. And his kingdom was lost. He, he lost his, uh, his kingdom, and all because he disobeyed God. It was total failure. That was the first king. Then God said, you know what? I'm going to give you a king, but I'm going to give you, you know, my king, the way that I look for someone who can be a king. And he sends a prophet, Samuel, to the house of this man named Jesse. 
And the, and the prophet sees one of the sons, and he said, surely this is, gonna, this is the king that I'm looking at here. And th- this is, what, this is what, what God says at this point. Okay, if you tune out the Old Testament stuff, this is your time to come back in. This is where we're going to regroup. This is one of the most important verses in all of the scriptures. First Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, because he's looking at this one son, he knows this has got to be the king. He says this, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it was his little brother all the way down, wasn't even invited to this thing. They had to bring him in, and God chose the young brother David because he had a heart for God. And he was a man of of beautiful faith and a beautiful heart for God. We see his prayers and his worship in the book of Psalms. We study it together. We pray them together. We still sing them together. Just an amazing person of faith, David. That's the kind of king that God is looking for. However, David was just a human being. He was broken in sin. He made some terrible mistakes. And although God used him, there was still all this brokenness, and it points to the fact that we need an even better king than David. As good as he was, as successful as he was, we need something even better than that. And at a very low point in David's life, God makes him a promise, and he says, from your family line, there's going to come a king, a greater king, the king of kings, an eternal king who will rule over Israel forever. That's coming through your family, David. That was God's promise. So it's no surprise to us that the prophet Micah, which uh, was sort of paraphrased and uh, quoted in the Matthew passage, it's no surprise that Micah says, but you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Basically, you know, Bethlehem, you're not much of a great place, but there's a ruler coming from your land, because that's God's promise. Just like David had a heart for God, this, this leader will ultimately have a heart for God, a special king will come. So why Bethlehem? Because God chose David, um, and, and it, it teaches us that it's not outward appearances. It doesn't always look, God's kingdom doesn't always look like the kingdom that we would expect in this world, but the outward appearance is not the most important. It's the heart of faith for God. That's why Bethlehem. So why a manger? Why a Bethlehem feeding trough. And we need to remember, to answer this question, you need to remember everything about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So that the point there is everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did was to show us God. God takes on human flesh and we can see who God is through Jesus. If if he, God otherwise would be so beyond our comprehension. We couldn't understand or conceive of God except that God has made himself known in different ways, but particularly 
and ultimately through Jesus Christ, God the Son. And what God is saying in that feeding trough, he's saying, I'm sending a king. I'm sending a savior to this world. I'm going to heal a world that is broken in sin. But look at how I do it. My kingdom is not of this world. This world is broken. This world does not operate correctly. My kingdom, however, is not of this world. Just watch how I do it. In the manger, the feeding trough shows us the power of God and the power of his kingdom. It is the most humble. It is the lowest. It is the dirtiest place you could put a baby is in a, in a feeding area for animals. A human infant is so vulnerable. And, and this family is also weak and vulnerable. They're on the road. They're not married. This is not a picture of human greatness. This is a picture of human weakness, but it shows the power of God. 1 Corinthians says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So if if you could even consider the weakness of God, it's greater than anything that we in this world could ever do as humans. The human way for us, the way we handle things, when we sense weakness in ourselves, we want to hide it. We want to cover it up. I want to present myself more like the Christmas card, strong and successful, We want to define ourselves by all the achievements of our lives. And we we put all this pressure on our children to achieve the same things. And, you know, if we feel weak or afraid or sick or uncertain, we want to fake it, hide it, numb it, cover it up. That's the human way. God's way is giving up his heavenly throne in coming to this world to show us a different way. And it's a way of serving. It's a way of giving life away. It's servant leadership. And it's not just the manger. That's where it started. But throughout the ministry of Jesus, you see this humility and this, even this human weakness. You know, we have Jesus essentially homeless during his adult ministry. We have Jesus associated not with the elite and the powerful and the educated, but with sinners and with outcasts. We have Jesus ushering in this kingdom. He's got no army. He's got no armed forces around him. No political power. His followers were just, they didn't have special education. They were just ordinary people. But they're people who changed this world. The ultimate picture of the humility of Jesus is the cross, where he gives himself, he is sacrificed, he dies for us, to save us. And it's in that greatest moment of humility and humiliation on the cross that three days later we see the power of God rising to new life. A whole new day has dawned. It's it's his greatest weakness, but his greatest victory and God's great power. And that power is offered to us if we trust in him. And yet, 
oftentimes, and I put myself in, in this, we leave church. So we believe this is true, these things I'm saying. We leave this building and we go out there and we start to measure our lives by the world's standards again. We start playing by the world's rules. Jesus said, I've called you out of that way of life. Jesus is inviting us to find our identity, not in our achievement or how, how good people think we are, but how precious he is to you, that he would die for you, that he would come all the way from heaven to earth to save you, to, to show you there's a whole new way, and it's not a way of just trying to be successful and, and trying to hide your weaknesses, but trusting God, a different way. And th- that type of life and humility and living in that kingdom is very countercultural. It takes deep faith in God that God is indeed in control. Confidence in God, knowing His strength in spite of my human weakness. Why a Bethlehem manger? Because God doesn't play by the rules of this broken and sinful world. God's standards of power and success are not the standards of this world. God is greater. And we're invited to join that kingdom, his kingdom, by faith. And when we, when we do that, then we experience the freedom. Then we experience the true strength that he brings. People of God, this is good news this morning. This is good news Three things. One is that you can embrace God's power in the midst of your weakness and in the midst of your powerlessness. There are going to be things that make you feel weak and powerless. It's a, it could be a family issue. It could be a financial issue, a health issue, a mental health issue. You can know the power of God in the midst of those things that make you feel weak. So we pray and we seek him for the things that are out of our control. None of it was in your control anyway. But we seek the Lord. And we pray. And the more we pray, the more we acknowledge that God is in control and we are not. That he is strong when we are weak. And as his word says, that his strength is made known in our weakness. Secondly, we now have a new way of life that we can follow. This way of life of Jesus. This way of serving and a life of humility. We can follow in that way as we walk in faith. So we can give our lives away. We can be generous with our money. We can be generous with our time, with relationships and serving people and listening to people and caring for them. And if you're in any way in your life, if you are a leader of other people, you can be a servant leader, just as Jesus ultimately came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. We have a whole new way of life we can walk. And lastly, God knows your heart. So you can be authentic with him, and you can be authentic with the world around you. You don't always have to try to cover up all your weakness and try to be, you don't have to be fake all the time. We can live authentically, and it is so freeing to get off that treadmill and say, I'm not going to play by the world's, I'm not going to play by the world's rules anymore. I'm part of a new kingdom. I'm a child of God. This Christmas season, when you are faced with some of those tougher moments of the holiday, At those times when you feel weak, remember the birth of the helpless little baby in the feeding trough and trust God, his strength will be made perfect through your weakness. 
You don't have to be perfect. You don't even have to appear perfect. Drop the masks. Open yourself up to the work of God. Let us pray. Father, confess we, we just go along with what this world tells us we're supposed to be and supposed to do and supposed to achieve, Lord. We, by faith, want to accept this offer of being a part of a new thing. Your very kingdom here on earth. That we might walk with you and find our identity loved by you. Cherished as your children. Your special possession, Lord. And we just pray that we would know that more deeply and that we would live it more fully. God, by your strength. We're even too weak to follow. But we pray that you would just give us your strength to, to lead us that you would shepherd us, your people, and that we would walk in your way, and that you would be glorified in that, and that we would know your power. We thank you for the manger. We thank you for showing us what your kingdom is all about. We thank you for the cross. We give you the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.